Christians have victory in death and over death because of the victory of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. That's according to the context. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he says death is not final for the believer. When Jesus died on the cross, he conquered death. He conquered death. Welcome to Living a Legacy with Bible teacher and author Crawford Loretz. Think about this thought. Jesus, born in a manger, entering the realm of humanity, was on a mission, a mission to rescue you and me. And as Crawford just said, Jesus' ultimate death on the cross revealed that he was and is and will forever be our conquering king. Hope you can stay with us as Crawford concludes his Christmas series looking at the kingship of our Messiah. So far in these messages, we've learned that Jesus is our creator and savior. In a few moments, Crawford takes us to 1 Corinthians to see what the Apostle Paul says about the implication of Jesus' resurrection. If you've recently joined our weekly broadcast, we want to let you know that Crawford has been in Christian ministry in various capacities for nearly 50 years. His books include Leadership as an Identity, Your Marriage Today and Tomorrow, Unshaken, and Make It Home Before Dark. Today, Crawford serves as president of Beyond Our Generation, a leadership mentoring ministry. Now, many of Crawford's messages are available to download for free on our website, and I'll have more about that at the conclusion of today's message. Let's get right to our study. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's Crawford Loretz on living a legacy. It can be argued that the entire Bible is about the kingship of Jesus. Uh, Jesus did not become king when he was born. He is king. That baby is creator. That baby is savior. And so the, the incarnation does not, is not about progressive deity. You know what I mean? Becoming deity. The incarnation says, no, he is deity. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that great prophecy really describes the kingly nature of, of the savior. It says, uh, for unto us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And so he's positioned as king. The question is, what does a king do? Kings back in olden days, uh, they, their, their titles were not titular. Their titles were not just figurehead. There was real power. So uh, a, a king was, you know, one who executes final supreme authority. A king protects his kingdom. Your, your strength was seen in your army and the forces that you had, so no one would mess, mess with you. It was a deterrent. Uh, a king uh, prosper his kingdom. Uh, if you grew, there was dominance, uh, and, and, and that power and dominance uh, put your enemies at bay. Kings provide for their people, and they provide for the poor, at least they should have. That was the role of a king. Um, kings upheld the law, at least the good ones did. And uh, kings administered justice. 
So when we talk about the kingliness of Jesus, and I, I kind of I realize that there's a disconnect in the West here. We are, we are authority averse. So to talk about kings and queens and monarchs and this kind of thing in the Western world, we got a little, little rebel nature to us, and uh, that doesn't relate to us. But, but uh, apart from our disdain or perhaps a little hesitancy about authority and that kind of thing, the truth of the matter is Jesus is authority. The truth of the matter is he is king. And the truth of the matter is that he as king has conquered. So what has he conquered? If he is mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counsel, what has he conquered? Jesus has conquered sin and death. Secondly, he will conquer resistance Thirdly, he will conquer his enemies. He has conquered sin and death. That's the first third of his mission as king. He will conquer resistance, the second third. And finally, and ultimately, at the close of human history, he will conquer his enemies. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's a great, great, incredible passage where Paul waxes eloquent. One of the greatest arguments you'll read anywhere, secular or sacred, on the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, it is, it is, it is wonderful. And he, he sets forth the foundation of our faith. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then what he did on the cross is null and void. That's what he's saying. But he's saying, in fact, Jesus Christ did rise again from the dead. Now, he comes to the great crescendo and climax of this, of this whole section. You pick it up in verse 50, and I want to read verses 50 through, uh, through verse 57. Listen to what he says here. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the immort puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law. But here's the point. Here's our conquering king. All of this has taken place because of what Jesus has done. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now your eyes might be rolling back in your head and you're saying, what in the world was that all about? What is he saying about all this stuff here? Well, let me, let me, let me just hang a few things on this text here, hopefully to help us to understand. Paul is describing under the broad banner of Jesus conquering sin and death that he has specifically conquered three things underneath that header. Number one, he's conquered death itself. Christians have victory in death and over death because of the victory of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. That's out of the context there, according to the context. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he says death is not final for the believer. When Jesus died on the cross, he conquered death. He conquered death. He also, and this may sound strange, is that he conquered, here you have it, deterioration. 
this, this mortal shall put on immortality. Yes, physically we're deteriorating, we're dying. But the cross work of Jesus Christ says what he accomplished says that there's an end to deterioration, that we'll have new bodies. What is it, 1 John 2, no, 3, 2 says that when he appears, now here, 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 when he appears, we shall be like him. It doesn't mean that we're going to be like Jesus, like what Jesus does. It means that just as Jesus is immortal, eternal, non-deteriorating, we're going to be like him. And that's all accomplished by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die just for you to feel good about yourself, have nice self-esteem, have some peace, and go along in life, and you know, you can just claim things for him, and he's a good buddy. It's kind of a shallow gospel that sometimes we preach. But he took care of death, deterioration, and finally he takes care of destruction. There's no destruction to a believer. Why? Because Jesus has abolished, broken the power of sin, broken the power of death. In fact, in fact, Paul is actually taunting death. And you know what he says? He said, look at these words here, verse 54. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay, death, brother, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where, where, where is your sting? In other words, he says, death is like a, like a bee without a stinger. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, death cannot hurt us. Listen, I, 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 I got to say this the right way. I, nobody wants to die. I don't want to die. I don't, I don't want to go through the process of dying. But I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid to die. Honestly, I say that with no, I, there's no braggadocia, nothing like that, and no believer should ever be afraid to die. You're not afraid of death. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, well, you're not afraid to die. No, you don't like the process of dying, I get that. But you're not afraid to die. Why aren't you afraid to die? Because of what Paul said. What Jesus has accomplished has secured our eternal future. The penalty and power of sin has been broken and the consequences ultimately in terms of eternal separation from God has been taken off the table. And death is just a doorway that we step over. Thus he says, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Rejoice. In fact, he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not scared of dying. Why? Because I'll be in his presence. So, all of this is done because of the victory of Jesus. So the first part of this trifecta Number one is that our Savior has conquered sin and death. Secondly, not only has he conquered sin and death, but number two, he will conquer resistance. And I, I just need to say this right now here. In preparing this message, I really struggled because these next two can sound so very direct and so very harsh and so very hard. 
And yet, as you read the Gospels and you read what Jesus has accomplished, um, I would lack integrity as a preacher of the Gospel if I did not speak to these two amazing things that he's accomplished. And they're not going to be particularly present for some of us to hear. He will conquer resistance. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Paul is actually, the context here, he's actually talking about, um, he's, actually, he's actually talking about humility in this passage. Uh, there were some issues there with some of the believers there at Philippi, and he's actually telling them, hey, 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 don't be so high and mighty. Don't think so strong of yourself. Get your ego in check. You're only one of many. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then one of the ways that you demonstrate that is in humility in relationships. How does he illustrate that? He illustrates that by going to the ultimate illustration, Jesus. He talks about in verses 5 through 8 about how Jesus laid aside his privileges, how he became obedient even to the point of death. And he says even death on a cross, a despicable death, identified with us, bore our sin, humbled himself. That baby was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was not born in some posh Roman quarters. He was born in a stable. Then God says this about him. Verse 9. Because he did that, Philippians 2.9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What, what he's talking about here is that uh, uh, this refers to his person, his position, his dignity, his honor. When Jesus laid aside his position to identify with us, doesn't mean that he laid aside his identity. He still was king. By the way, by the way, uh, some would argue, say, well, if he was king, why, you know, why did he let them crucify him? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I argue, is one of the greatest demonstrations of power the world has yet to know. Why? Because, because he had the power to kill all of them. And he restrained himself to obey the four counsel of God. And in that powerful restraint and allowing them to do what he could have stopped is a demonstration of extraordinary power. No, he didn't give up his identity. And so, as a result of that, God has given him a name that is above every name. Now, this foreshadows what he's getting ready to say here is prophetic here because this foreshadows what is said in Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 16, I do believe. When, 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 when Jesus returns the second time that he comes back, the first time he came, he came as a lamb for the slaughter. The first time that he came, he went through humiliation. The first time that he came, he restrained himself. The first time that he came, he came as a suffering servant. The first time that he came, people rejected him. But the next time that he comes, a vision in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, when the armies of the world rise up against God, and they come against the people of God, they come against the nation of Israel, the sky will crack open and there's a white horse that's coming out of the skies with the armies of, of heaven with him. And the text says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, that there, there are two names that's written on his thighs, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Jesus is coming back to take over. He is king. He is king. And it's with this in mind that Paul says, okay, here's what's going to happen. He says in verse, uh, verse, verse 10, so that the name of, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on heaven, and under heaven. Notice how he says this. He says, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow of people who have ever lived. Now, now, in case Paul is saying, well, in case you may not understand what I'm trying to say, let me give you a few prepositional phrases to help you to understand what I'm saying. The universal nature. He says, every knee will bow. And by the way, the, the, the idea of bowing has to do with surrender and submission, deference. They're going to do this in deference. But notice these prepositional phrases. He says, well, where are they going to bow? He says, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this, that no intelligent being, whether angels and believers in heaven, people living on the earth, or Satan, demons, and the unsaved in hell will escape. Willingly or unwillingly, every single knee will bow. Hitler will bow. Oh, yeah, he will. Atheists, prideful moralists, they will all, all of us, will bow. There won't be any debates. There won't be any resistance any longer. For he says, at the name of Jesus, knees will buckle and we will bow. Furthermore, he says, and every tongue will confess. Bowing has to do with surrender. Confession has to do with acknowledgement. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. So my question to you right now, why are you resisting him today? He has conquered sin and death. He will conquer resistance. But thirdly, and this one gives me a little bit of a, I, I will say heartburn because, uh, let me preface it by saying that God is, is longing for us during this age right now. Right now he is, he's, looking for the loss, he's seeking and saving the loss. He, and and, and his, his, his demeanor toward us is one of love and grace and mercy, and he's reaching out. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his attitude, and that's what he wants to do. But I would be dishonest if I did not share with you the portrait of what's gonna happen at the end of time. And thirdly, he's gonna conquer his enemies. And there are three enemies mentioned in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. The first enemy that he conquers is the beast and the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The beast is what is commonly called the Antichrist. The false prophet is his henchman. 
The second enemy that he takes care of, finally, is Satan. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The third enemy of God that's taken care of at the end are unbelievers. You say, Crawford, isn't that cold-blooded? No. No, it's not. Our natural tendency is to think that way. My natural tendency is to think that way. For several thousand years, and I don't know when this is going to take place for several thousand, maybe more years. I, I doubt that we have that much time left. I don't know. God has been wooing people. God has been demonstrating his love. God has been calling us. God has been reaching out to us. God has been saying, come. He's been saying, come. He's been saying, come. He's been saying, come. But we are the ones who have resisted him. Unbelief is not a state of, of, of uh, neutrality. Unbelief is not a passive, neutral state. To not believe is a, well, I will say this, is a passive declaration that we are enemies of the cross. And so here we have this scene. At the end of human history, there's this thing called the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, this is a judgment not for believers. Believers will not be at the great white throne judgment. Our judgment is called something called the Bema Seat, where rewards will be given. But the great white throne has to do with eternal destiny. And there's only unbelievers, non-Christians, at the great white throne judgment. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then these terrifying words. I believe these are the most painful words in the entire Bible. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question is right now today, are you allowing him King Jesus, to conquer your heart now. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you want to be, I want to invite you to pray this prayer, not out loud, but in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn from my sin, and I respond to you and receive you as Savior. If you prayed that prayer and really meant that Christ is living in your life, but what I want to encourage you to do, I want to encourage you to tell that to someone that you know is a follower of Jesus. Crawford Lorenz here on Living a Legacy, and I hope you chose to turn to Christ. What better way to start the new year than with a new heart, a new life? If you'd like to talk with someone about that decision, here's a toll-free number to call right now, 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. Well, Crawford just wrapped up his three-part Christmas series, Our King. And if you missed out on some of today's program, hear the complete message on our website, livingalegacy.org. Look for the past programs link. And you can download a number of Crawford's messages for free. Look for the MP3 link on the website. 
What a great way to spend time during air travel, or road trips, even commuting. Listen to downloaded messages on your audio player. Again, to stream today's message or to download free messages, start with livingalegacy.org. Thanks for joining us today. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.